Score, the podcast. The only show taking you inside the studios of the world's most celebrated composers and musical storytellers. Presented by Spitfire Audio. I'm Kenny Holmes. Hey, I'm Robert Kraft. This is Score, the podcast presented by Spitfire Audio, saying hello to composer Carol, who's also joining the show as usual. Hey, guys. Hi, composer Carol. <laughs> Hello. Everyone good? Everyone have a good uh, 4th of July weekend? Safe? Everyone has all their fingers? Well, I think one thing that we can all agree on is you don't have to go to fireworks anymore. They come to you. Yeah. Our backyard was was in a somewhat of a war zone. I don't know where the war zone specifically was, but there were atom bombs in my neighborhood. Yeah, Carol, your neighbor's house caught on fire, right? My neighbor's house was on fire. It was so loud, even until like 4 a.m. It was crazy. But it's, you know, once in a year kind of thing. Sheesh. And, you hope. You know, I, I don't know. We'll see. Well, I'm glad everyone's okay. Uh, and uh, we hope you had a nice holiday weekend. Um, we have a terrific guest joining us this week. Uh, he's somebody that... We've talked about getting on the show. We got a chance to spend some time with him when shooting the documentary Score. He is an Oscar and Golden Globe nominated composer for, here's the list of films, Hamlet, Sense and Sensibility, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, Caesar, Jeez. Gosford Park, Thor, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, Cinderella, Brave, Henry V, Dead Again, and there's so many more. He's been uh, in the game for quite some time. And I'm so excited to have a big smile on my face uh, for this interview. Because if you haven't heard our guest, Patrick Doyle, who's coming on the show, if you haven't heard a conversation with him or just hearing him talk is just, it's it fills up the room. It's There's a lot of positive energy. Robert, you worked with him on uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Is that the only film? Oh, no. We've had a lot of fun together. We did Planet of the Apes. We did the film Aragon. Oh, that's right. Aragon. Uh, about a flying dragon. The less said, the better. Uh, we also did Great Expectations together. Uh, really wonderful film. That's actually the first time I worked with Patrick and just was really overwhelmed by how much I loved his music. I didn't realize until that film that he, he does a certain thing that just gets to me with his music. And not only that, as you said, he's just the greatest hang. I'm also excited to ask him about, we, we were doing some research on him, and in his IMDb listing, the very first thing listed is an appearance as an actor in the movie Chariots of Fire. And I haven't had a chance to go back and rewatch the movie, but um, we got to ask him, wh how did, what? He's an actor in Chariots of Fire. It, it doesn't look like a big role, but I'm excited to hear what that story is all about. Yeah. Um, as always, before we jump into the show here, we want to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Spitfire Audio, maker of orchestral virtual instruments for film composers used by many of the guests right here on the show. In fact, at the end of our uh, Terrence Blanchard interview, he said, make sure to tell the Spitfire guys I did the Five Bloods and I think uh, Perry Mason with Spitfire. I think everybody's using Spitfire these days. It's really become an industry standard and they currently have these two new editions of their best-selling BBC Symphony Orchestra Library, including the Discover Edition, which is a whole symphony orchestra at your fingertips, and it's just 49 bucks. And if for some reason in this 
Strange time we're in. The $49 is out of your current budget. You can complete a form on the Spitfire website and get it free. I just did it. I just did it. I filled out the form. I did it too. I'm getting it on July 18th. I can't wait. Uh, We also want to mention Spitfire's new composer magazine, all sorts of different spreads and and photographs. You can read an in-depth interview about the Witcher composers on how they approached the music of that show and so much more. So go ahead and check that out on uh, the Spitfire audio website. The best news for all of you devoted score listeners is we have a great deal for you. It's 20% off your first purchase. Good on over 50 different Spitfire libraries. First of all, to think that you can choose from 50 libraries and get 20% off. All you have to do is use our promo code. It's SCORE2020, and it's a limited time offer. So I'd go right now. I'd actually hit pause, (laughs) walk over, buy a couple libraries for 20% off, and then be sure to stick around for today's show. At the end, we're going to play a cue using the Spitfire Solo Strings package. That's a good one. Really wonderful package. And I do want to make a quick announcement here that uh, after today's episode, we are taking a few weeks off to regroup. Doing this show remotely has been a a little bit of a task, so we're going to get our ducks in a row, and um, we have an incredible lineup of guests coming for the conclusion of Season 3. We have quite a few... uh, episodes left and the guests I cannot wait to announce and we can't wait to sit down and talk with some of those amazing composers so stick around and stick with us uh, for season three here we appreciate all the love we've been getting on there um, it's it's been an interesting week we had a big blow to the film music world as uh, the legendary maestro Ennio Morricone passed away at the age of 91 Um he, of course, has composed so many of the greatest scores. Uh, I, th- I think over 500 films, which is just incredible. Yeah, he actually has um, has a record, I think, a current record of he scored 20 films in a single year once, he, he, he said in an interview. So he works fast. You know, Ennio, once uh, I had an opportunity to work with him, and one of the things that he said which I always found just an indication of his greatness and his focus. He said that once he was flying from Los Angeles back to Rome, you know, he worked out of Rome almost exclusively and rarely traveled. Yeah, he was big on Italy. He didn't even, he made it a point to famously do all his interviews in Italian and have them translated to exactly right and he if you wanted an ennio morricone score you went to the forum studios in rome which in itself was a incredible experience but once he was flying back to rome he said and they had to circle because of weather and he said i was so grateful because I had one cue that I just couldn't finish and still needed to work on. So I was hoping the weather would stay bad long enough for me to finish this piece of music before we landed. And I thought, now that's different. If I was on an airplane, all I'd want to think about is, man, I can't wait to get on the ground. Ennio just thought, I'm in a little bubble of writing. I don't want to land. I hope the weather stays bad. And I thought, <laughs> that's a true, a true artist, true artist to, that the impact that he's had first off 
you know, I, I always point to like John Williams and Jaws for something like when I was a kid, before I, I had even seen Jaws or heard the music, it, it was so it, it was so injected into our culture. When you jump in the pool, you start humming the Jaws theme. And it's the same thing with uh, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. That sound, that spaghetti western sound is synonymous with if you're playing cowboys outside when you were a kid or when anytime you see anything related to like a western, you can't tell that story without Ennio Morricone. And it just goes to show you, you know, Metallica covering the ecstasy of gold, the ecstasy of gold used in a Jay-Z rap song, Yo-Yo Ma covering it. Like, look at all the different types of music that are pulling from that and the impact that he had on uh, all different genres of music. And that's just his spaghetti Western stuff. I mean, he, he had such range of all these different films. And of course he finally won his Oscar uh, in 2016 for The Hateful Eight, which he did with Quentin Tarantino. And uh, we wanted to play you a little clip of his uh, Oscar acceptance speech. After all the years of composing, he finally won his Oscar. And the Oscar goes to Ennio Morricone, The Hateful Eight, my brother. Refractolino. Thank you, the Academy, for this prestigious acknowledgement. Il mio pensiero va agli altri nominati, in particolare allo stimato John Williams. My tribute goes to the other nominees and in particular to the esteemed John Williams. Non c'è una musica importante senza un grande film che la ispiri. There isn't a great soundtrack without a great movie that inspires it. He takes the time to thank John Williams. I just found that so cool and, and inspiring that somebody who's a legend in his own right, and he, he thanks John Williams. And um, how cool that uh, Quincy Jones presented him the award, too. And we know Quincy's always traveling around Europe. He probably spent a lot of time with him as well. I'm sure. And, and uh, you know, I think he says something in Italian to him, Quincy speaking every possible language. He's, Quincy always says you just need to know a few words in each language to to make friends. But I love um, that quote. It's a great though, loss. There isn't a great soundtrack without a great movie that inspires it. It's so true, and um, we all know it. And it's it's really a testament to Ennio that he is that humble that he thanks John Williams. I think these guys, I'm sure, danced around and near each other for their entire careers. But it's a great loss. He's a he's a hero. He's an original. Um, and he did things his way, and that's that's a testament to his artistry. I mean, you had to come to the forum in Rome. He would not speak English. He had an I did a movie at the forum, and he had a translator, and he would you'd ask a question, and the translator would very politely say the translated version of "No, the maestro is not going to change that cue." That's the way it goes. And you didn't argue. You could ask politely for changes, but he'd say, this is what's best for the movie, and you trusted him. What I think is great about art is that when someone passes on, it it really highlights their art. I mean, if there's a, a positive spin to the sad news, it's that everyone is listening to Ennio, and hopefully new audiences are hearing him and, and sharing it and you know, take a minute to go through 
we have the luxury of digital libraries. You have everything at your fingertips. Just take a minute and listen through to some of his stuff. And I'm sure it's going to be skyrocketing to the top of all the playlists for the next couple of weeks as people listen through. I think there's some signature scores. I'll just, we can end with this. Some signature NEO scores besides the good, the bad, and the ugly, where we all know that ocarina theme. I think there are certain that are just classics. The Mission mm-hmm. is just a huge score. And The Untouchables, one of my all-time favorite scores. Carol, wasn't your uh, the one that inspired yeah, you? the love theme from Cinema Paradiso. And Cinema oh, Paradiso, that was the other one. So I think if you if you listen to those three or four, you'd see what great, great Ennio Morricone scores sound like. And even The Hateful Eight more recently. And The Hateful Eight, of course. What a life and what a talent and RIP to the great maestro Ennio Morricone. Maestro. Uh, we want to take a second to um, check Score the Mailbox. Is there an atom bomb in Score the Mailbox? Sounds like my backyard. We have some mail to check if we can switch gears. Not an easy transition, but the best uh, we'll do for now. Uh, We have a message in from Ben Hayden, who is a student at Davidson University in North Carolina. Ben writes, for the orchestral musicians out there, how do you think the desired skill set of orchestral instrumentalist recording scores differs from the skill set of typical orchestral performers? Meaning, what is the difference between a studio musician, somebody uh, playing on one of these teams for a score, versus uh, a normal orchestral concert player? Oh, that's a question I've been asked uh, by lots of perspiring young musicians, and it even comes up in interviews. I think I can. I have. I have one quick answer for you, and that's. Go ahead. The ability there's a, to there are sight a couple read. really quick answers. Say it again. <laughs> the ability to sight read is a key uh, element to that. You don't practice. so You absolutely nailed criteria number one, which is, and I think we have enough of an adult audience to say what studio musicians and film music say. You got to sight read fly shit, which means there are, Lots of little dots and quarter notes and eighth notes and 32nd notes flying by on a piece of music you've never seen. And by the way, they're recording you, so you have to play it first time every time incredibly accurately. That's very different with a symphony orchestra musician who gets to rehearse and they, I'm sure there's pressure on them, but it's not like time is money at the level that it is in film music. So the first criteria is you have to be able to sight read just at a huge speed, truly sight speed. Um, You also have to be very, very flexible and non-diva-like about what you're asked to play because you can bet that you're going to be told, can you guys do this this way? Can you guys do this this way? Can you play pizzicato? No, actually, I want it to be legato. No, actually, could you play rubato? No, could you? You can't say, dude... You know, I've had it. You, your job is to be the engine of a driver who's the composer uh, and often the conductor and without attitude because your days are 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. break, 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. break, 
6 to 9 or 7 to 10, and then you get to sleep. And if you're lucky, you're back at 10 a.m. the next morning, and you're getting 10-minute breaks, and it's really a very professional application of your skill set. So let me ask you one question. In your years of overseeing scoring sessions, has there ever been a musician that you saw that was just not hitting the notes and there was frustration? Or are these generally, I mean, when you get to that level, is there not even the possibility of someone being that green? It's a really wonderful question because it makes me envision all those scoring sessions. And my answer to if there was a musician who is not hitting their marks, they were only there for one session, maybe not even the entire session. Because those sessions, you know, you have 90 players in the room. What you need is the intermediary, which is someone like Peter Rotter or the great Sandy DeCrescent or Gina Zamidi. These are the great contractors who book the players and they know it's on them to make sure that they have only the varsity in that room because you can't afford to start over. Everything was fine except the third violinist was out of tune or out of time or forgot their mark. So you can be sure there's a, there's a team that you see over and over again, day after day. That's the absolute a team. The only other thing that's different about orchestral musicians and studio orchestras is Orchestral musicians can play in St. Louis or Miami or Budapest or Argentina. Studio musicians have to be where movies are being scored, and that still remains a very small amount of locations. New York and London and L.A., of course. Seattle and sometimes Nashville now and sometimes Prague, but yeah, there, there's, you know, you need to have all the equipment and right personnel to play in the studio. I wonder if that'll band. change as we move forward and a lot more remote stuff has opened You're up. Absolutely right. It could. You could live anywhere, I guess, at this point and play solo. You just have to play in tune and in time. You're talking about the Olympic team, if you will, of, uh, of you know, the studio musicians. You, you have to be flawless every time. And if yeah, you're not, they'll absolutely. find someone that is, I think at that rate. Yeah. See ya. Uh, thanks for yep. the question, Ben, Ben Hayden. And uh, if you have a question for the show, you can send it to score the mailbox at epicleft.com. We'll try and get to your question right here on the show. Now, before we take a break and we get to Patrick Doyle, I want to play something really special for our listeners. Normally, we don't do this, but it brought so much joy to us, and um, my stomach still hurts from laughing so hard. Uh, So as you hear in our breaks, we have our guests. uh, We ask them to read a little liner uh, to bring us back out of break. Hey, you're listening to Score the Podcast. And so we asked Patrick Doyle to do this. And uh, he he said, sure, he did one take. And while he was doing it, I think Robert talked in the middle or there was something. And we, we asked him to do one more take. And then this situation unfolded. And it might be the funniest thing that I've heard in a long time. Anyway, listen, guys, thank you very much. Oh, I'm going to do it now. Have a great day. One more, one more take, yeah. You want to like, hi, this is Betty Doyle. You're listening <laughs> <laughs> I have an Edinburgh. How old is Patrick Doyle here? You listen to this. Go on, the broadcast. <laughs> <laughs> Do that. 
Which part of Scotland do you want? You want Edinburgh? Hello, hi, it's Party Doyle. You're listening to Score the podcast, and now let's get back to the show. <laughs> My face hurts. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the one. That's, no, that's Edinburgh. That's Edinburgh. I'll give you Inverness. Hello, it's Patrick Doyle here. You're listening to the Score podcast. And now let's go back to the show. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is me. This is Glasgow. Okay, here we go. You ready? Yes. Hi, this is Patrick Doyle. You're listening to Score, the podcast. And now let's go back to the show. What Patrick? One more time. I think you're a little hot on the mic, though. You're, you're popping. Give, okay. give us the FM DJ. Okay, okay. Hi, hi. This is Patrick Doyle. You're listening to Score the podcast, and now let's go back to the show. Oh man, <laughs> that was so good. Oh, that deserves a round of applause. <laughs> he really is the best. <laughs> We're gonna take a break, and if you enjoyed that, the interview is a lot of that. Uh, a lot of fun coming up with Patrick Doyle. Stick around. We'll be right back. Blockbuster, the winner of Adweek's Creative Podcast of the Year, returns. Film is a hobby, not a career. I know, Dad. James Cameron. James Cameron. A movie for your ears. James Cameron. What? Me? No, 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 no. Ah! This isn't what I envisioned. It's a bad idea, okay? About the world's most ambitious filmmaker. It has to be perfect. Just say, I'm the king of the world. What? Why would I yell that? Blockbuster. Get it wherever you get your podcast. Hey, Score fans. I'm just wondering if you have a favorite question you've been dying to ask us. You know, you could send it to us in an email. You send it to score the mailbox at epiclef.com. That's E P I C L E F F. Come up with a good question. Kenny or I will do our best to answer it, and if we don't know the answer, we may make one up, you know, just to keep the program rolling. Better yet, you could even record the question yourself and attach that to an email. Include your name and your location, and you just might make an appearance on this season of Score the Podcast. Hi, this is Siddhartha Kosla. You're listening to Score the Podcast. And now, let's go back to the show. Welcome back to Score, the podcast presented by Spitfire Audio. So excited about our guest today. He makes his home there in Shepperton Studios in England, which we uh, got a chance to visit when shooting Score, a film music documentary. He's known, uh, of course, for his two Oscar-nominated films, Hamlet and Sense of Sensibility, for those scores, and also Golden Globe-nominated composer of Sense and Sensibility and Dead Again. Patrick Doyle, sir, how are you? Oh, thank you. I built in on We have a studio audience. <laughs> These people are so friendly. And, <laughs> um, it, they are lovely. We they're expensive too. So <laughs> let's hope to, that let's we, hope the space safely. <laughs> yes, they are six feet apart. Isn't that nice? That means there are thousands of them. Patrick, it's so. Uh, nice not only to see you, of course, and see you again, but I'm reminded when we hear that you're at Shepherd and Studios that I once came to visit you and I thought about it. I think it was on Aragon, yeah. a lovely film about some fantasy mm-hmm. dragon. And I came to Shepherdton to visit you. And on that afternoon, the 
two other movies were being shot, and I was so excited. Obviously, I was excited to see you, but when we went outside, Pirates was being shot on some soundstage nearby, and Johnny Depp and his screen double were walking together, and I thought, that's perfectly odd. Two Depp Pirates. Depp. And if I, that's right, Depp and Depp, Depp one and Depp two. Am I correct in remembering that there was a big oh oh seven stage as yes, well? Yes. Um they have a they call it the double oh seven stage. Um I think it's a, one of the biggest stages in, in Europe. I am not I'm sure I'm not sure America as well. But they can actually flood this stage and have and have, ah. you know, mock uh, um shipwrecks, etc. Uh, oh, they wow. used it they used it on um the film I did Frankenstein years ago. Um, it was a, it was a, wow. it was amazing to see all these actors getting drenched with, with, um, gallons and gallons of fake seawater. It was unbelievable. It's a huge stage. Yeah. But, um, yes, it's enormous. I think in the, in the United States, we don't hear a lot about Shepperton Studios. What can you tell our listeners about, uh, Shepperton? Is it the largest studio lot in Europe? Uh, no, it's um, well. I, 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 I'm not really sure. There's uh, Pinewood Studios um, is the sister studio to Shepperton. There's Pinewood Studios and Shepperton Studios, and both have been uh, uh, um, facilities for making films for all oh, way back, way back to uh, the beginning of talkies. Um, if I forget mm-hmm. his name, but uh, the, the the studios were actually founded by a Scotsman. Um, who I wish I remember his name now. Um, he he uh, uh, he made a fortune on what they call the flick books, where you would flick a piece of uh, a little book with a little animation oh, changing yeah. drawing every time, and that's why they called it "Go to the Flicks." Um, and he made a he made a fortune selling these, and then with his passion for for silent films that, um, that were just showing little shorts at the time, he bought an enormous fancy country house. And built, I think, six sound stages and literally built it from scratch. So it was founded by Scotsman, Shepparton and Pinewood Studios. Very cool. Um, so, uh, um, yes, I mean, they, they used to, the lot used to be a lot bigger. It was a bit like um, the Fox Studios when they had um, masses of land before Century City was built. We, we had cool. masses of land around it. Um, in fact, they shot Oliver, the movie Oliver, and if you remember, um, who will buy this wonderful more? That whole en- enormous uh, mm-hmm. set with the Palladian houses, those London houses, those sort of Paddington houses, a whole semicircle of them. Um, well, they had that up here for years and years and years and used it for all these central London scenes or movies or whatever. Um, and then it was sold off um, in the 80s and asset stripped, sadly, it was bought very cheaply, and mm. all this beautiful land was sold off. Um, now they're busting at the seams. Uh, Netflix have now taken over the studios. Wow. I think for the next for the next five years, only only Netflix are coming here for five years, and me. Yeah. So <laughs> how, the the question is, how do you end up? Because you know, so many of the composers we've talked to, they either have studios at home or. You know, David Arnold is at Air Studios, but we don't talk to many composers who have a, a spot on a film lot. How do you end up on a film lot? And uh, you've been there about 30 years, right? I have. Um, my very first film was Henry V, and uh, they gave me a little 
Porto cabin, um, and I scored it from mm-hmm. there. And I never like to work at home. I really work at home. Maybe I'll try the odd thing out at the piano, but invariably I, I like to come to my work every single day. I come to the office every day, and I work, whether it's, if it's on a, not in a movie, I work in my own projects, my own projects. Um, and I've, it's lucky I've been able to build a little, literally a little fence around. There's now a little citadel. <laughs> I've got tall trees, and I look out, all I see are trees now. Um, so, um, and, I've, and uh, I attend my geraniums and uh, my plants out the back. And uh, it's a little area that no one can find. Uh, a secret garden in the middle of Shepherd Studios. So it's just evolved, and I'm sort of part of the woodwork. Uh, I'm sure they would like to get rid of me for the space, but... <laughs> <laughs> I was I got nervous when you said Netflix has moved in. Would they say, who is the guy in the back with the geraniums? Do we need him? <laughs> What's with the nursery and this really funny guy out here? Patrick, I want to know about that coming to work every day. I think that's incredible i'd love to know is there a specific time that you really clock in i think young composers need to hear that this isn't a kind of wait till you're inspired gig and do you come even when you are not in the heat of battle scoring a film do you still show up and just be there or is it only when you're working on a film no, I'm here every day, every day, Monday to Friday. If I can help it, I don't work uh, Saturday and Sunday, if I can help it. Um, but obviously, uh, when things are crunchy and um, a, a movie that's changing all the time, then it spills into Saturday, but but rarely, if ever, a Sunday. That's sacrosanct. I think the body needs a, a day to completely rest. The brain needs... A day. So I come in every day regardless uh, of whether I'm actually working on a movie or not um, uh, because there's a, there's a, I've got a million ideas of my own and I work. Uh, uh, I've just recently written a piece for solo violin and orchestra um, that Maggie asked for, my agent, uh, for an album. So I spent a couple of days on that. So that, that was set off. And then I'll get, I'll get masses of projects of my own to, to work with. I, I did a concert. In Celtic for Celtic Connections in Glasgow hmm. uh, last January, and I wrote a, a Scottish overture um, and a choral piece. Um, so um, I, I I love coming here. I'm here by about nine thirty. It's an hour later. Uh, I've worked out by the time I sit in traffic. It's easier just to wait till after nine o'clock when all the schools go sure. in, and then I just then I can drive in very quietly. So I start at nine thirty. And I usually leave up any time between 5.30 and 6.30. And I have no lunch break as such. I just eat on the run, a bowl of soup or something. <laughs> nice. So, um, and the gang are the same. We all just eat on the run and get home early. Um, so that's my routine. And it's as regular as clockwork. And it has been for 30 years. Uh, it clearly works. Um, I, I just wonder... When you move into the studio to do Henry V, of course that was because your good friend, Kenneth Branagh, had, I I remember you told me at one point, I'd love to hear, and I'm sure everyone else would like to hear, you were working on a play with him, am I correct, that he was, that you knew him from school, and that he asked you to work on a 
on a theatrical version of Henry V? Uh, no, he actually no he um I, I I was asked to no he he played Henry V on stage, and I think he was the youngest Henry V um, in the Royal Shakespeare Company's history. He played that part at twenty one years of age. I remember seeing him on television mm. being interviewed in one of these chat shows. Um, but no, he asked me to do to come and join him as a, a composer, musical director on a production of Twelfth Night, uh, Shakespeare's Twelfth Night at the Riverside Studios uh-huh. in Hammersmith. Um, and from there, um, it was very well received. In fact, I I I co-wrote a song with Paul McCartney for that. Oh, <laughs> come on! That? Are you? Are you the fifth Beatle? I am, but Paul keeps it quiet. <laughs> Is there any possibility we could hear that song one day and release it and say an undiscovered Beatles treasure? It's a long story, but basically, um, at one point, Ken, before Kenneth Banner knew me, he asked Paul McCartney if he would uh, could give him a song or something to help promote this show that this new theatre company he had he had initiated, uh, the Renaissance Theatre Company, and uh, and that and of course um, he said, well, he didn't of course say, but he said, I'm, I'm really busy, um, <laughs> uh, and as you can imagine, but he gave him this song and said, this might be useful, I don't know, so um, and when I, I was introduced to Ken, we met and he asked me to do the. The, the 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 music for the play and uh and then he said we have this song by Paul McCartney um and I wonder if you would consider using it and I said in my youth <laughs> I said <laughs> in my arrogant way I said well that's what I meant at the time I said well only if it's appropriate um mm. I, <laughs> He's like, he's like, I, studio marketing divisions <laughs> would love to hear that response. <laughs> you see, as a producer, and I'm thinking, I can't believe this guy just said this. But I was, <laughs> I, I was very sincere about it. Um, so I went home and and I opened the 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 play. He gave me a book of the play. I mean, I knew the play anyway, but he gave me a, a copy of the the production that the particular copy of the edition that he was using. Um, and I opened the. I opened the, I opened the book and it came to Festy's song "Come Away Death," and I just listened to the Paul McCartney song and I thought, "Oh my God, this is so bizarre!" It scans with this, this poem, this um, song that Festy sings, um, but I thought, but it needs a counter melody, so I wrote a counter melody on top of it over Paul McCartney's mm-hmm. melody, um, and then I dropped one of the verses. And I thought, now, now it fits to suit the theatre production. So um, then I phoned Ken up and I said, and I because immediately when I met Ken, um, it, it was something extraordinary. It was a, 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 a sort of an instant sort of um, click went on between the two of us. I thought, my goodness, it's as if I've known this guy forever. So I called him up and uh, I said, uh, I've just looked at this, um, the play again, and I told him the story. Um, so that was it. So uh, when the when the program was printed, they put music by Patrick Doyle, Paul McCartney. So all the reviews, the show was a huge hit, a huge hit, and uh, all the reviews says music by Doyle and McCartney. So, <laughs> so and, and Doyle call. was first on that. Uh, 
Yes. No, yeah. because Paul, John Lennon came looking for you. Well, Who is this the guy? Thing is, the thing is with the billing, uh, Paul only wrote one song. I wrote about 90% of the score. Um, so uh, anyway, so uh, I, I, the phone rang. It was hot, the phone. I've just read, is, it, is this you? <laughs> yes, it is actually. It's <laughs> But, um, but anyway, that's a that's a long story. Um, but that's when I first worked with Ken. Then I, and then I toured with him, and we toured uh, with Hamlet, um, as you like it, and much do about nothing. Uh, all three plays, and each of them uh, were directed by Judy Dench, uh, Derek Jacoby, mm. and Geraldine McEwan. Um, so we toured the whole of uh, the UK and Northern Ireland, um, and then after that, we did a world tour. Uh, touring with uh, King Lear and I Miss Some Nice Dream. And we played the Mark Taper Forum in downtown LA. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, it was a, I just ha- we just happened to be in Los Angeles um, at the same time Henry V opened in Los Angeles the film. So we were there doing a play and uh, I was doing uh, the film had just opened. So it was like a perfect storm for me in terms of. Um, helping my career to be launched. So it was uh, one of those things that the gods all came in at one time and said, all right, it's your turn. And you had an instant <laughs> connection with Ken, it sounds like. I mean, you said it, and it, it seems like those are hard to come by. Do you do you feel lucky that you found your director that soon, that right out of the gate like that? Well, of course, it was my very first picture, and we've done about, I, think, I can't, I've forgotten about 13 films together. Um, maybe this is the thirteenth or the fourteenth. I can't remember. Um, it was extraordinary. Um, I met him very. I'd, I I never went to. I've never. I don't go to clubs or that kind of scene to network and all that stuff. It was never my my scene to do that. Um, but I went. I went to see a production of Napoleon, a one man show, with a mutual friend, John Sessions. And John Sessions is like a Robin Williams, a hilarious guy, hilarious. And he and Ken were rather together. So I went to see the show, um, and uh, it was extraordinary directing on in, in Ken's part and a, an extraordinary one-man performance by, by John. And I met him in the Zanzibar bar afterwards, and uh, it was uh, just a, was a very was a brief hello. Um, and then I got a call. Uh, and I mean, I, came, I met him at the Riverside, and it was instant. It was he never even asked to hear any music. He just said, huh. "Oh," and he, he immediately says, "Well, should we do this and we do that?" I thought there's no sort of formal, you know, do you want to work in this? It was, and then we do this, and then we do that, as if, as if it was always going to happen. It was strange, and I, I suppose that's what he's like. He, he'll he'll think, "Well, that person would be perfect for this," and then there's a he has a discussion with him, and. Um, and on that occasion, it was a it was a foregone conclusion, a foregone conclusion, obviously on his part, and it was meant to be on mine. I thought, well, I reckon we're now working together. So, and that was it. So, he- Kenneth had been offered a film deal for Henry V, obviously, uh, f- as a result of his work, and he turned to you and said, "Well, since you've done the music for the play, uh, would you score the film? Had you scored a film? No, it wasn't actually as simple as that. No, we were working together in the theatre." And I knew he was doing this film. Um, obviously, I heard he's working on this picture. So he had, uh, um, 
he had he was busy just getting on with it, and uh, I suppose he'd. Um, I think he'd he'd uh, possibly approached another composer. I think a chap called Howard Howard Blake, not a lovely guy, who wrote a mm-hmm. film called the, the score for a film, very successful animation film called The Snowman. Um, mm-hmm. And Howard had said, no, he'd, he'd, he'd done enough work in films, he wanted to concentrate on a concert career. And that was a long mm-hmm. time beforehand. So as to the composer on this upcoming film, he hadn't really thought about it. So that was the only time um, before and since that I lobbied uh, to do a movie, I hustled to do that film. I was very nice. nervous, very anxious about it, but I hustled, and uh, and and I put him, I suppose, under a little bit of pressure, um, uh, because we got on so well, I suppose, and he's a very loyal chap. So the producer, I, I played some thematic ideas I had for it, and um, and he responded very well to that. And then they gave me uh, some money for a demonstration tape, a demo. <laughs> Yeah, this, this is before samples, um, modern samples. But we had a, I was, I was uh, introduced a guy who had a Fairlight, the, yes. the early computer, this enormous thing. And I, I mocked up the non nobis domini from the picture. Mm-hmm. And also what ended up being the opening title. Um, and both of these were written. Uh, with just descriptions in mind, without seeing any film. Oh, and it wasn't written to picture. No, and they both are exactly as they were written and and fitted <laughs> to the picture. So this was my first score, and uh, uh, my life was uh, consumed with terror. <laughs> <laughs> and that film yielded the scene that someone we both worked with who was my boss at that time Tom Rothman yeah. would always point to the big epic speech in Henry V and Patrick Doyle's cue <laughs> and say whatever movie we were working on if we were working on an animated picture about little kitty cats and there was a moment where it was somehow the triumphant moment the boss would say I want it to sound like Patrick Doyle's cue in Henry V because it was the incredible example of heroism. Patrick, I'm curious, when you said, I mean, you you lobbied to score this film, did you have any idea about the inner workings of the just the 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 verbiage the 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 whole beast that is scoring a film i mean obviously you were qualified for the music but did you have any idea what you were getting into and how did you adapt to all of that i had no idea whatsoever no idea there was no music editor mm-hmm. i didn't i didn't know that such a thing existed <laughs> um and i had no idea how to put music to film i was improvising I'm, i have a fairly good piano technique so i'd be improvising on a on a very early sampled synthesizer with just strings. Um, that'd be, that'd be my mock-up. This is a string sample. And, uh, I would, that, I would demonstrate that to Ken for ideas. Um, but, uh, one day I realized, well, I was told by, um, an orchestrator that this will not fit to the picture. What you're playing is, when, as soon as you sit down to play that, it will not fit. It has to be to the frame and the second. And I says, well, how the, eh, 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 do I do that? He says, well, you'll read the Carl Knudsen book. And I says, who the hell is Carl Knudsen? Um, he said, music editor. I said, oh, just, and he goes, I said, so he handed me this book. 
I don't know if you've seen it. This thing is like logarithms. It's like trigonometry. I thought for a person who was useless at maths, I. I, I nearly, I nearly headed for the Severn Bridge or the San Francisco Bridge. I thought <laughs> this is a nightmare. What was? And of course, I'm saying nothing. I'm, I'm, I'm blagging it. I'm going, yes, fine. It's all kind of like you know, smoking mirrors. It's no problem. I'm thinking, oh my god, this is a nightmare. Um, so I made him sit down. I said, show me how to use this you know, bloody thing. You know. So he sat down and he explained it to me. And I thought, oh my god, I get this. This is, you know, going from one tempi to the other and and stopping and you know he said you have to you have to plot the entire thing out in advance whether you're using four four bars six four bars you work out your tempi everything else so it was a crash course in one day uh, and I mean just in fact one morning I said you're not leaving here so you show me how this flaming book works and I thought <laughs> of course I got this then then I, I would spend. Uh, four hours, three or four hours every day mapping out these things before I wrote a note. So I worked out the entire, I, I improvised, I just worked out the entire queue. Then I would map it out to, fortunately, I had a locked picture, fortunately. The picture was locked and locked for months. So, um, and there was no studio breathing down our necks, you know, about changing the lock. So that was it. So I had this luxury of a locked picture. So then I very quickly got to grips with it. And then, the music began to pour out because um, I wasn't bogged down with the terror and the technicalities. Um, and then I would have to write in every three or four bars, you know, after 1.4 seconds we are at the show, and I put the, the marking of, you know, what was happening on the picture and everything else. Um, so that was the process. That, that's how I learned to write to picture. And the irony was when we got to the recording session, uh, Sir Simon Rattle, who conducted, that's another story. Um, <laughs> when he conducted it, it was his first film. Um, he said this is matching so beautifully to the film that he threw away the cans and conducted it wild. Amazing. He didn't use any click for the entire. So months of hell in my part were wasted. <laughs> <laughs> so, in fact, he did what the oxygen says was impossible. He did it. He got it. And Simon came down to my studio at one point. I was so so nervous. He's such an illustrious, you know, figure and musician. Mm-hmm. He was mm-hmm. so great. He was so unpretentious and still is unpretentious. Um, anyway, he, he was so into it and so generous. Um, and uh, he said, he said, Patrick, we don't, we don't need to, I don't need your click. You know, with all due respect, it's all fit in this dialogue. I know exactly what you're, it's all, you've given me instructions on the, I can see with the the you know explosion here, horse comes into view, dialogue there, and the music. That's all I need, and um, without any clock, and he conducted that picture. So it's an extraordinary event. The entire thing for your first film, it was like, and I was like, it was almost as if I was on. If you can imagine, I was on top of a fountain. And I was being injected, <laughs> and it didn't come down for months. You know, <laughs> I just thought, I thought. They, every day something more amazing happened. It was this whirlwind of, of, of wondering what I'm going to do with my life. To I can't deal with this. It was just it was a tsunami of changing events by the second. Um, so it was an extraordinary time. That must have been a huge confidence boost for you, though. Once you started figuring it out, did I mean that just a overnight change? Because most people spend sometimes years learning this and, and apprenticing and stuff like this. But for you to learn on the fly like that, 
Did you feel pretty confident moving into your next film? Like, I got this now? Well, fortunately, technically, the next film I did um, was a film for uh, for Disney. And by then, uh, computers had arrived in, uh, with music editors suddenly had computers that would print out... Um, you were given all the, I would give them all the instructions and the, and the computer would print all that pre, uh, pre recorded blank sheet of music out. So it did all that donkey work. So that, that, all that work was <laughs> eradicated overnight. So that was my second film. So fortunately. What was the film? It was a film with Shipwrecked um, in America. Mm. Um, and it was called Harkin Harkinson in Norway. It's a Norwegian, a very mm. famous Norwegian story. Um, and uh, to this day, when I listen to it, I think, oh, my God, I can't believe it. There are a thousand million notes every five minutes. I just, I just so, I just so much to prove. Um, it was, can you imagine a pilot movie, an action movie? It was extraordinary. Um, I don't know how I did it looking back at it. I know, I know where I got the energy. It, it was extraordinary. Looking back in that score, it's terrifying. Um, and the, the page is black. You know, it's all handwritten. Um, I, I couldn't do it now. I couldn't do it now. It's too exhausting, all that. Too exhausting. I heard you in an interview say, actually, that uh, when you used to have to handwrite scores, you would have to go on a vacation afterward. Um, but now that computers are around, you can you can go from score to score. Yeah. Yeah, it's a breeze. It, I mean, the, the whole thing about what happens when you start to write, I mean, one goes into an alpha state when when one composes, you do do go into a kind of a really heightened state of concentration. Um, and things happen within that after you come out of it and you think, where did that come from or whatever? Um, <laughs> but when you're writing it by hand, that is multiplied 50 times. And it seems to, it just seems to eat into your brain in terms of your, your fatigue level and all your energy. Um, and yes, I, I, I would ho- often have to go away for, um, well, I, I normally, I couldn't go from one project to the other. I did have to have time off. And, uh, we're very fortunate we have this house in France. Um, and, uh, we didn't at, at this point, but now, uh, I, well, halfway through my, the first half of my career, I would go away and, and spend, you know, a week just staring at a wall. <laughs> <laughs> Not doing anything like a Japanese, you know, stone garden. Um, yeah. I mean, the kids now, the kids laugh and say, oh, daddy's looking at the wall again. Um, <laughs> so I literally just, I can, I can go from, I can be, a, you know, full of inertia and full of energy, you know, you know, from one, you know, moment to the next. Um, so that's, and I, I still do that to a degree. I have, I am very, very generous with my holidays um, and my downtime. Um, when I'm working here, I work. But when I go on holiday, I can go away for weeks at a time and not do anything. I think that's great, and I think it's admirable and required. You know, we all have to refresh. I mean, some of the work, it, one of the best things that this interview has done for me is I've had the opportunity to be reminded why you have always been one of my favorites. I went and listened to so many of the scores, Sense and Sensibility and Dead Again. And then I got to some of my Gosford Park. And what's interesting to hear these stories is I hear an evolution also with electronics. Yeah. Because there must have been, of course, a moment where your incredible orchestral facility, uh-huh. which is just insanely Gorgeous. I mean, we did great expectations together, and I went sure. back and listened to it. Uh-huh. And um, that's one of my favorite themes. 
the Great Expectation theme. Maybe yeah. it's Kissing in the Rain or yes. Kissing in the Dark yes. or something. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I, I just loved it. But um, then as we continued to work together, there were – the there was the incorporation of electronics, and I don't know if there's a particular score where you realized I have to actually use electronics as an instrument now instead sure. of just samples. Do you remember what score was the pivot point and well, well, how it changed things? Well, there was a there was a a major there was a, a major sort of flip because um, I knew that the phone rang. On four different occasions, and I was asked to do four movies, one after the other. And each one I had to turn down because I I wasn't mocking up pictures. And, were, and were, the producers were very blunt and said, "Well, if you can't, if you don't mock up Patrick, you can't work on a project." And I thought, "Hmm, things have changed dramatically." <laughs> uh, um, so I thought, "All right, okay." So I'm going to have to buy computers. And I, for a man who who could even email or type. Bizarre for a pianist. Um, so this was a terrifying prospect. I thought, oh, dear. Because um, the old adage, adapt or die, is the case. Um, and I always think of the great composer Handel. You know, when, op- when opera wasn't fashionable, get the, or- get the oratorios down there, you know. So he completely kind of like swapped um, to sort of feed the market what was. And I thought, well, I have to embrace this technology. So I bought it, and it sat for the box and gear sat for about nine months. <laughs> they, Come on, open me up. And I was like, oh, no, it's terrible. I don't know what to do. I didn't know anyone who could help me with this stuff. Um, anyway, eventually we got a young person to come along, and um, and we opened up the box, took it out, and I started the process. And um, that was for uh, Nanny McPhee, and, and you know, it was in logic. So, a couple of a few of the cues were logic, a lot of the cues were handwritten. So, it was a hybrid, a real hybrid moment in the score. You can see, I've still got all, all these scores, you can see the transition. And then Harry Potter came, and it suddenly became a lot more of electronics for Harry Potter, but still. I was thinking symphonically, um, and a few of the a few of the score, a few of the cues in Harry Potter um, were written totally by hand. When Cedric dies, um, that's all done by hand, and the very last cue of the movie, all done by hand. Wow. And I remember I wrote them in I wrote them in France those last cues, and uh, I remember coming at the point I didn't have a proper studio at the time, and I was working in the garage, makeshift in the garage, and the doors were open. And I come out at the end of the day. And I'd forgotten what it was like to write <laughs> by hand. And my head, my head needed bled. It was bursting. I thought, oh, my God, I can't do I just can't do this anymore. This this other stuff is so, it's just an incredible, um, it's like a power tool um, after you've been screwing <laughs> in nails. You've got a power t- the drills in the nails. You think, what about you know those those guns as well for staples? Right. Well, the hand done. Though that kind of speed at which people put on a roof, you know the 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 cladding in a roof. You watch it. It's a bit like that. You, the the work start diminished because you still have the background. It was just something I would say. Okay, now the assistant I have. Um, the programmer will. I'll say, okay, give us some, give us a string pad, right? Give us a string. Um, okay, individually, I'll, you know, and I'll say, give us some horns, and then I'll orchestrate as I go along. Um, mm. And of course, he will ease the sounds, and you know, so they've got crescendos and diminuendos and everything else, and you know, rallentandos or tenandos, you know. So um, 
all it was was just having this amazing tool, amazing Black and Decker, um, to you know, to, to to just to speed up the process rather than killing yourself by hand. You, know, you can just play at a run, you know, up at an uh, octave. You can double up the flutes, double that with, you know, the clarinets or whatever. You know, and, uh, I, I put a, a bed of horns underneath that, and suddenly, you know, it's, I couldn't get it down fast enough. So um, I'm very grateful, um, you know, for this change in many ways. And then I suppose Thor, um, I think Thor, Thor was the big, big sort of computer one that with a symphony orchestra and that um I'm working that was the first time I worked on it um on that kind of massive um franchise and apart from Porter it was it was different Porter but, but the Marvel label was was something else that's a whole machine that's sort of you have to be as Ken says it's like being asked to um, come in and redesign the McDonald's sign, but don't change the M. <laughs> you know, but you've still got to come in and actually put your thing in there. So you've got to squeeze yourself out of this huge machine that's absolutely this big juggernaut that this is the way we do it. Um, so um, I remember the Q, which in fact is the NQ, the end title Q in Thor, that's the first piece I wrote as a standalone sort of demo. And, uh, you know, I, um, and I used these huge, big, broad chords with these incredible drums and everything else. And, uh, um, and this da 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 those kind of, you know, diddle little diddle those kind of ostinati figures. I thought I would have that device throughout this entire piece and all the harmonies would grow around it. Um, so, and I sent it off to to uh, folk at Marvel after Ken said this is great just send it to them so I sent it so they got excited and uh, although it was never used in that form they were so great they, they loved it so much they gave it you know, they said please put it at the end title and that will see mm. us off so um, that was the first film and I did get some comments people saying oh my god I was, I was astonished you did that picture it was you who did that picture um, so a lot of people were surprised and uh, um, and so I didn't expect you to be doing such a electronic score and sort of rock and roll, some point rock and roll. <laughs> Does and it? I suppose, oh, sorry. sorry. I was just going to ask. Uh, you, you seem to be very musical with your singing, and we know you're a singer. Does that? How does that help you when you're presenting ideas to producers or directors? Do you sing a lot for them, or do you mostly play? Well, if, if, when I'm writing a song, I'll sometimes record it myself. If I'm invariably, I will record it myself. I'll either put on a voice or <laughs> sing it in my own singing voice. Um, but I come from a singing family. I come from a, an astonishing array of great singers, not just. Good and you've singers. made a couple too in your house. I know that you have some beautiful singers. Yes, I, absolutely. The two my, my two daughters are fabulous singers. And they're not, they're, they're, not, they're not interested in doing it professionally. One of them works for Simon Cowell, ironically. Um, she has a, she's an international um, vice president for international, for Britain's Got Talent and uh, The X Factor abroad, the whole, whole world. Mm-hmm. And she's a, be- she's a better singer than half the singers on this show. And she's, <laughs> and she's not interested. But she's some she's some movies for me as a favour. So and sometimes the demos she worked with Robert Alman at nineteen. She wrote she co wrote a song with Robert on Gosford Park. She sang two songs on it, and she faked a, a, um, one of the songs, um, uh, but she put on this um, sort of sultry sort of 
um, Cabaret Weimar Republic voice and sang the song. And, uh, and Robert says, I love that. We'll keep that. I said, but that's fake. No, it sounds real to me. We'll keep that. You know, she was 19. Do you ever sing on your scores? Have you ever made an appearance? Yes, I've sung, I've sung, not anymore, but I've sung, uh, I've sung on Much Do About Nothing and, uh, on, uh, um, as you like, um, as you like it. And Henry V, um, and the soldier who sings, No, no, be stormine, domine. No, no, be stormine. Said no, meanie, said no, meanie. Toward our glory, am. You know, so I still. Oh, <laughs> can we have some applause for that? I just wonder. Did Paul McCartney? Did Paul McCartney call you and say, uh, "Listen, can you can you open for the Beatles?" Oh my you know, I mean, I must say, uh, I do love singing it, and I've studied it. And uh, um, uh, but and you know, the family. All, I, I, I say, my two daughters are both fabulous singers. We did a concert, um, two concerts last January. One was the love, the world live first live performance of Brave. Mm-hmm. And the concert hall in Glasgow, and also the following Thursday night, that was on the Saturday and Sunday, and the following Thursday night, which is an evening of my music, and part of that was uh, my two daughters singing. One sang a song from Into the West, a movie I did in Irish mm-hmm. Gaelic, and Nula, my daughter, sang um, uh, um, the song from, the song from uh, murder on the Orient Express. Um, we will never forget you. Um, and uh, also that evening, I took an old recording of my father, who had died, unfortunately, although at a great age, 96, he died, nearly 97, he died um, a year before. That was two years ago. Um, I took a recording of his, and I cleaned it up, and then we played the recording live with the BBC Symphony Orchestra. What? That's awesome. Now, now that was unbelievable. And I'm not making this up. Everybody in the orchestra, even the hard-bitten brass players, were all wiping their eyes, you know. <laughs> and the conductor, Dirk Rossi, was like, what's <laughs> oh, up? was like, I have to put myself together. And I'm not joking, because everyone has a father, and whether you love your father, you didn't go home with your father, or you can't live without your father, or, you know, everyone, everyone's father was a huge part of their lives, uh, well, it is a huge part of their lives. Um, and he had an astonishing voice and never ever sang with an orchestra. That was his dream. Uh, or solo with an orchestra. He sang um, on the choir um, on Henry V in an Nobis Domini. And I have a video of my dad with cans on, with, Frank, with um, uh, Simon Rattle. It's very, very... Really? Crazy. Yeah, I have a video, a home video of that. Um, I have a few home videos of, of the whole non-Nobis tracking shot um, and the filming of it. Um, but uh, so um, he never had a sang solo with an orchestra. So this was an extraordinary. The, the audience went crazy. They just loved it because it's not, it's a really world-class voice he had. It wasn't just like, well, that was very pleasant. That was like, what are we talking about here? We're talking about <laughs> Pavarotti or that kind of voice, you know. That is great. Uh, so it was, a, it was a wonderful, it was a wonderful moment. Um, 
I mean, I mean, looking back on it, good old Will, he pressed the button in time. <laughs> And the recording, there was no problem with the recording. So it was a treat, actually. Um, we have so much more to get to with Patrick. We want to take a quick break. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hey there, fans of Score the Podcast. I'm David W. Collins, creator and host of The Soundtrack Show for iHeartRadio. Like you, I love Score the Podcast. And The Soundtrack Show is the perfect complement if you're passionate about music for film, TV, even video games and theater. Each week, I do a deep dive into some of the greatest scores of all time, as well as some fan favorites, and talk about why the music moves us from a character and story point of view. We also learn fascinating behind-the-scenes stories and share the history and background that brought each piece of music to life. It doesn't matter if you're a musician or not. Music is a language that we all understand. And through our love of movies like Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Back to the Future, or even classics like Casablanca or Psycho, we can gain a deeper appreciation for how composers are speaking to us through music, explaining why we have such a powerful reaction to the images on screen. The Soundtrack Show is available on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Stephen Price. You're listening to School the Podcast. Let's get back to the show. All right, we have a little treat for you here, Patrick. Okay. Welcome back to Score the Podcast presented by Spitfire Audio. That is <laughs> the story that we made famous last year on the show. I got a cookie for you. And we have the composer here to tell us all about the moment. Patrick Doyle, uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, stuck yeah. on a queue. <laughs> looking at cookies and the video oh, the video is incredible of uh, the scoring <laughs> session but what what do you remember about the struggles of the cookie well the thing is the cookie was a that really was the kind of um what would, they, what would you call it the cookie was the the epitome of the entire experience of the film um it was one of those films that and it happens, it just goes in one direction, the wrong direction, the score, right? And then there's shock and horror when people eventually <laughs> when people eventually turn away from a thousand other pictures uh, and turn around and say, What is this? Uh, all these all these huge all these demo the whole film was demoed. And I was thinking, this is going in the wrong direction, I fear. Uh, but um, my loyalty is to the director at all times. Um and will remain so. Um, but it became apparent to him and myself um, at this stage when the studio threw their hands up in horror and said, what is this? Um, so I, I, and there was a, a the, the score was in danger. I have to be honest, the score was in danger. And um, a certain man called Robert Kraft, <laughs> and along with <laughs> some very, very good friends at Fox, said, whoa, I would just... <laughs> Give this guy maybe another look at this, you know, <laughs> and tell him what you want before it ends up, you know, in you know the the drop score hell box. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, of which I am eternally grateful. Like I said, here we are for the record for all your listeners. The man is sitting, you know, through the Zoom world in front of me, and uh, it was it was great because to cut a long story short. Uh, I took a I took a, a call from Robert and various people, and then we had a call with all the executives at the top, including Rupert. And uh, I said, "Okay, tell me what you want." Right? They told me what I want, and uh, I jumped on a plane the following morning. Um, this is real Hollywood story. I jumped on a plane 
the following morning. And because um, I woke, they said, do you want to have a go? They said, sure. No one's taking this away from me. I want my ass off for this. Sorry, I want my butt off for this. <laughs> so, so, so I jumped on the plane the following day, and I rethought the entire score based on the notes. I sort of knew the score I wanted to write anyway all along. Um, so when we arrived, um, uh, then we, if you remember, Robert, we all like we all came and we had a spotting session, um, and the main theme I remember I was sitting. You, you'll be verify this. The main theme, ba ba ba. One of the main themes, ba ba da, dee dee da, ba 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 da. Right, was composed in front of this room full of people. It's not the first time I've done this. About about eight people in the room, and uh, and I sang it down just because it was handy. I sang it into a phone and it was sent to my assistant in London and he wrote it in manuscript and sent it back. So we had it printed back in about 10 minutes or five minutes. Um, that became one of the main themes in the, the film. Um, so um, anyway, uh, it was two weeks of the, they flew the crew over, my team from London flew us over. Um, and I, I said to them, okay, I've got the brief of the film. Nobody talked for two days, do exactly as I say. Do exactly as I say. There's no discussion. There's no collaboration. Do exactly as I say. Right? I know exactly what they want. Okay. And on day three, then you can question things. Okay. Right. Okay. And that's exactly what happened. So on the third day, then the, I said we get, we get up at we get up at seven. We start we go up at six. We start work at seven, and we stop at eleven, and we eat and we sleep at twelve. So we'll have six hours a day of sleep. No, all, no, all the nighters, and we we put the, the fox put, and, and you're including yourself, Rob. Put us all up in the intercontinental hotel, right next to, next to Fox. You gave us my equivalent of here in Fox Studios, and I think we were the first, probably the first composer. I was the first composer to work on the lot for about thirty years or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was perfect. I was at home there, right next to the studio, um, straight off the. Computer straight into the record, and lo and behold, that was the first time I heard the expression "you've gone from zero to is it zero to hero." That's yeah. it. I never heard that expression before. And I thought that's very apt, you know. And as you as you uh, uh, can verify, um, we had a ball anyway. The cookie, that scene, that particular scene, because I'm rewriting re reinterpreting, rewriting the whole score, probably 50% of it was rewritten. A lot of it was fine. Um, but when it came to that, that blooming cue, I kept looking and said, what the hell? What is this scene? And was this about, it's about sort of collectivity and the group and connecting through this, giving a cookie, right? <laughs> and I thought, what did I do here, right? And everything they tempted with was, never I tried, I thought, and then I suddenly thought, and I looked at it, I've got a cookie for you. I've got a cookie for you. <laughs> i got a cookie for you. And I thought, well, that's it. Surely not. Surely that's not it. You know, I just started goofing around with it. And that was it. So we put, I said, give us this rhythm, you know. And all these kind of ethnic instruments and samples and stuff. I went, I've got a cookie for you. I've got a cookie for you. I've got a cookie for you. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then, of course, in all the orchestras you came and everything else. And um, and then I remember playing, and I remember Robert, you you, you come round like this, but your <laughs> your eyes just smile on your face. 
Do you remember the day, Robert, as well? I've been trying to write this climbing up the tree queue. It was driving me insane, right? And it wasn't happening. And Rupert didn't like it. And, you know, um, and then everyone was sitting there. You remember this day? And I said, right, right, keep that drum beat going, right, from the queue that no one likes. Get rid of everything. Give me a string pad, right? Okay, sh- put the queue up, right? Okay, I'm going to improvise this entire thing. I'm going to play to picture. Grab this, okay? So I literally started, and you'll verify this. I played improvised entire cue to for watching the whole scene like I used to do thirty years ago, like a like a silent movie pianist in a film in a old film silent film studio or, or theater years ago, um, and then because I've been living with this scene for so long, I thought, I'm, going to, I'm just going to go back to to my own instinct the way I used to always work, and everyone went, "We love it." <laughs> <laughs> we, we love it. That was it. Um, Patrick is too modest here because what I'm realizing and remembering is I saw true movie magic in front of me a couple times when you sang that first cue. And I remember the whole room just lit up. It's like, well, that's it. I mean, <laughs> uh, also when you played the tree cue and everyone said, okay, that's done. I mean, it was just. <laughs> So lovely to, and I would always want to say, you realize you just saw genius at work <laughs> in real time. This wasn't somebody who's just sort of, you know, agonizing over something. He's actually feeling the scene and writing the music. But I do want to add the thing that I always took away and I now teach, which is the film that you saw of Planet and the Apes when you were in the UK and we were in LA was a film of guys with little dots all over their body and body microphones and body cams. It was the pre-special effects version of all the apes with their CGI high-tech information on that was going to be transformed into fur and faces of apes. And you wrote to that. Mm -hmm. And I remember the feeling or something that you said at one point, which is that one of the transformations that took place was here when you finally saw the full-on, I am Caesar, you know, the full-on ape. You thought, oh, my goodness, there's too much something in the music, and I don't remember what it was, drama or overcompensation for all the electronics. You've got to change the score and dial it down, which you did in two weeks. And I think what you've omitted from the story is we were on a incredibly high pressure clock. The movie, it was one of those situations that you hear about where bus shelters around Los Angeles had (laughs) coming May 4th, rise of the planet of the apes. And this was like April 2nd. Yeah, And you had to deliver, and we had a score date. So you had to write all, I've got a cookie for you. <laughs> you know, I, I remember you said that it was the night before, or two nights before the actual recording session. Yes, yes. So you thing, delivered. And the thing was, the thing is about that cue in particular, that cue was just perfect for that. There was no other cue, there was no other music in the world would have done the job other than that. That was what that that cue needed. I mean, the process was agonizing, but fortunately, um, having worked in theater for 10 years, theater is full of last-minute 
dramas and f- fires. So I, and I come from a family of 13 and every day was the opening of a movie. And I'm not joking. <laughs> it was, it was a drama every day in our house. It was always somebody losing a finger, getting run over by a car, getting mauled by a dog. And I'm, I'm absolutely not making this up. It was crazy. I lived in chaos to this day. The kids can, well, not either two, but when they were young, they would, they would play ball all around me and I could compose and it wouldn't bother me. But the minute I heard a rhythm, I would say, stop that noise. But chaos, loud noise. So as you remember, the sessions, there were 50 people came to the last sessions in that recording session. 50 people came as guests. It was like a party. Um, so I, I, I sort of thrive, um, on, on that kind of drama, but with the caveat that, all the thought processing about what this film was was done over almost a year. So I, it was all in there. I just knew with this new direction, which made total sense to me, this is, this is you know, but, but you're right. If you can't see the film, um, you can make some kind of leap, quantum leap, but until you see them all with all the, you know, rendered and everything else, um, it becomes something else. Um, and often less is more. So you start. That's, start that's the back. lesson that you taught me on that, which is the lesson yeah. is more lesson that less you had, more. You made a remark once which I always thought about, which is that you had you felt that you it was too dramatic. The music once you saw the pictures, the monkey spoke so yes. much in their visual presentation, yes. their final yeah. presentation that you didn't have to write yeah. as but much. See that, and that's the danger. That's the danger of of. Um, Working too early and it's difficult for composers. Um, working too early on a picture because um, this leap, this leap of imagination that you that you inject is very often overcompensating for. We haven't got the proper visual effects. We haven't got the proper sound effects. Um, and very often, if the sound department are a bit slow in providing all the sounds, you're overcompensating for for sounds that are going to come. But I don't have to. I spent two days in that. It's un- completely unnecessary so if you can hold off um as long as possible um but do as much preparation as possible until as, as much of it comes in that you see i know where we are then you learn by it um but you know the shock shocks and surprises come up on every picture i mean that was one picture with certainly with your help um i was i, I was i felt like Popeye clinging onto the ship as the ship was was on a motorboat as it was flying off and he's determined to get back on it again behind the wheel. So I I wasn't I wasn't gonna let that film go. So some films you go, you thought you you know, I've, I've done my bit. No way. Because I love the story. I thought it looked amazing. And I said to Tom Rothman, I said, Tom, this film's gonna be amazing. And he wasn't sort of sure at one point. You know, he's under huge pressure. Um and he's juggling a million pictures as all these heads of studios are. But he very, very kindly uh, sent me uh, a lovely post. I have it just behind that door. Um, and it's, it's, a high, it's a picture of um, Andy Serkis where, where the, during the advertising, advertising campaign, they had this poster that went from his face to the ape's face, to Caesar's mm, face. I remember um, that. And, yeah, as you looked at one angle. So he sent me that and he signed the boss and says, dear Patrick, you were right, Tom. Uh, oh, that's great. Well, I think we also have to give a shout out to our great mutual friend, Ted. Ted Galliano, yes. Because Ted was the one who was in that meeting. I don't know if you're fully aware of this, where we all looked at the music you had sent, the demos, and the director looked 
I would say suicidal would be the <laughs> upside of how he looked. And Ted and I walked out together and Ted said, call Patrick and tell him he should be here tomorrow. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that seems really kind of over the top. I mean, can't we just have, and Ted, Ted said, you know, he has to come. He has uh, to come to L.A. right yeah, away yeah. and sit with the director. He'll get this right, but yeah. you need him in the room. And I yeah. remember I went back to my office and called you, and you said, I'm on the next plane. Yeah. And that, that saved it. And I thought it sounded incredibly dramatic, and you were incredibly calm. Yeah, sure. I was. I was. I, 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 I am. I'm, I'm, I can honestly say that you know, I was brought up in, 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 in mayhem. You know, every day was mayhem. <laughs> Millions of people in the house. Um I sort of can look through this kind of miasma of kind of, and I can focus on things. I'm sort of, I thrive on big crowds. You know, it's the kind of person I, I thrive on a thousand people around here. You know, so, you know, um, and it's, it's, it's almost like, a, I don't know, you, you become like a, like a, like a circus. You know, a circus, um, the guy who, who's the guy? Yeah, the, the ringmaster. The ringmaster, yeah. Um, so, and uh, and I, especially when you know, you, I, I thought this is a great briefing. This is a great new briefing. I know exactly what to do here. I know exactly mm. what to do. You just tell me what you want. You want it blue, red, yellow, or green. What do you want? Do you want strings? Do you want this? Do you want that? Um, solid direction, and you're off. Um, plus, it's a great picture, um, and it stands up to this day. It's a wonderful thing. So, but yes, without Ted Galliano's support, your support, and you know, there are always, always mates in these situations who see the bigger picture part of the pun and know that certain people no no this is this is to, this is to do with direction and to do with redirection um it's, it's it's i mean the cliche is is knowing the process when people know the process you can say look i know where you're driving going with that don't go there don't go here i remember working with uh, mark andrews on on brave and mark would go he's like so infusive you know so he would say um I love it. I love it. I love it. You know, um, this bit's great. That's too fast. I want it like this. <laughs> great. Got it. Okay. That was it. You would do it. Next thing you go, I love it. I love it. Okay. And it was like, boom, boom, boom. Absolute. This is what I want. This is what we need. And I mean, when someone's coming up with a highly intelligent alternative to your idea, then you go with that. That's called collaboration, you know, it's, uh, because you're contributing and throwing things in with inhibition. They go, we love that, we love that, we love that. People don't want to be dragging everything out of you. They want your contribution. And then go, well, look, what about that? Um, because that's, I see in terms of the arc of the story, you're right. You know, I'm, I'm too focused at this moment, but that will pay off there. Absolutely right. So it's a wonderful collaboration. And generally speaking, that's how it is. But some films like that, you just know this is going in the wrong direction, and it's and it's not coming back. <laughs> it's like it's it's getting beyond me. I'm and no one's, I'm I'm like a voice going, no, I don't think so. This isn't right. Um, but anyway, so it worked out well. Patrick, we, you mentioned Brave, and <clears throat> first off, we're curious: were you brought onto the film because of your Scottish roots? Did that play a role in it? And you also voiced a character in the film. Were you? <laughs> <laughs> Are you an actor? I know you, we, we saw a credit of you with uh, Chariots of Fire, and we wanted to try and find it. Are, were you in Chariots of Fire? Where did you guys find this stuff? Yes, I was in the, I was in the film Chariots of Fire, and the only clip they ever show of it, I'm the only person who speaks. Um, it's when, if you know, if people who know the film, the guy 
runs, little runs, Eric Little runs, and he falls and gets up and still wins the race. It's unheard of. Um, so, and it cuts to the cuts to the crowd, and I play this character who's a, a, like a bookie's mate, like a betting guy's assistant, a little runner, and I've got this sort of 1920s cap on, and, and I think, um, and it cuts to me, <clears throat> and I say, you'll never do it! <laughs> <laughs> he'll never do it! You <laughs> saved the picture. Or he'll never make it, or he'll never make it or something. I'll never make it! Um, so, this cut to me, um, so, Anyway, so the only clip they ever show is that. In fact, they showed it when it was shown at the Oscars. They showed that clip. My brother phoned from Holland and he goes, I've just seen you in Chimes of Fire. What the hell is going on? That's only a small part of my huge role. And that was it. <laughs> and that, that was, was your it. first uh, acting Oscar that you won, right? Yeah, well, <laughs> yes. yes. I, 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 avoid, I avoided cries after that. I became Greta Garbo. I thought, no, I can't take The limelight's too much for me. Um, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Um, no, it was fun. It was great fun. And uh, in fact, I was wondering, there was a lot of people I know who, whose performances, entire performances, ended up on the cutting room floor. So I was lucky to have one line in it. <laughs> Ken Branner was in the movie as a young actor. He was cut from it. So, um oh. Uh, seriously, um, Brave was with Emma, who was you knew, of course, through. I, I want to be delicate about this. She had been with your great friend, yeah, and they were the married. director, yeah. Kelly and Emma were married, and uh, were they when you did Brave, were they still together, or did no, you? No, they weren't together then. Um, I, I, I met Emma long before I met Kenneth Branagh when I was uh, an actor. We were, I was working in Leicester Haymarket Theatre. Um, in the studio doing a play by a great friend of mine, a playwright, an artist called John Byrne. And uh, and Emma was in the main theatre doing Me and My Girl, the musical, and we all got to know each other in the bar and became great friends. And this was long before she was, uh, you know, the sort of international star that she is now. Um, so we're both uh, sort of unknowns. And, and that's the best time to meet people when you're all just... Um, just sort of forging your way through things. Um, and then uh, when I hooked up with Ken, he coincidentally started a relationship with Emma and I already knew her. So, so uh, I was friends with them on a, a sort of individual way. It was great. So it was, all, it was perfect match, the whole thing. Um, and I've still remained great friends with them both. Um, I've learned this. When people, for whatever reasons, uh, separate and go their separate ways, that's their business. And uh, um, one keeps well out of it, um, especially when you love both characters, so uh, both people. Um, but, uh, no, yes, she was on, on Brave. Um, uh, so it was great to work with her. Um, and I wrote the song, uh, uh, which my son Patrick, who's now a film composer, Patrick Neal, um, he wrote the words to the song, which were translated into Gaelic, uh, Noble Maiden Fair. So I oh. composed it for Peggy, the young girl, yep. and Emma. So um, and we worked together um, at the recording session. So it was delightful. It's lovely. Wonderful. And they asked you to voice a character? Well, yes. Um, um, I, th- I think, I think it's, it's, they named him Kevin. <laughs> and uh, I have three lines and a snore. <laughs> at the end of the movie, there's these little thing they have during the, the end titles, just before the film, the roller stops. I wonder, I wonder if anybody who saw Brave 
stood up in a movie theater somewhere in the world and said, I know this voice from Chariots of Fire. I think it's the same guy. Well, that that agent will never do it. The one, the one line agent is still chasing me. <laughs> um, no, they were very nice actually. They for some fun, they, they knew I'd done some acting away in the past, and they gave me a, a few lines in it, and and uh, they took me. There's a quite a ceremony that takes place. It's wonderful. They have a real. They have they walk you like royalty to this board. And on the board in one of the corridors, there's all every actor who's ever voiced a Pixar movie signs this board. Oh, that's so I was so nice. up there with all these amazing actors, Tom Hanks. I was like, wow, this is unbelievable. Um, so, and I said, what's my character's name? He said, he's, he's no one refers to him, but he's called Kevin. Kevin Doyle. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, that's uh, great. Anyway, so, anyway, um, it was uh, no, uh, your question was, um, but actually, it's one of those funny stories. In, a, in, in Hollywood, or anywhere, in fact, but, but it's kind of funny, but in Hollywood, they'll sometimes ask a Greek composer to do an Irish picture or an Irish composer to do a Greek picture. Um, and this time, they've got a, Scots, a Scotsman to write a quintessentially Scottish score for a Scottish subject. It is quintessentially um, Scottish, Scottish also. Also, absolutely. And, um, and I thought, oh, this is fantastic. I was so chuffed as they say in Scotland I was so pleased they did this I thought great that part they got right is wonderful and then uh, oh we were about three or four months into the process and I said to the director producer um, I said to Catherine and uh, I, I said uh, and Brenda I said, I said thank you very much by the way for this gig this is a wonderful experience um, and you know I told them the whole business of getting a Scottish composer for a Scottish subject and they both went quiet and they looked at each other and they looked at me and said actually we had no idea you were Scottish oh my god <laughs> how, how does somebody not know you're Scottish by talking <laughs> to you it, it just didn't know they said but we just love your music and they said and if I was Scottish that we thought, perfect and they thought, oh, my God, it's, this is amazing. He's actually Scottish. I mean, so the gods were aligning there, you know. I thought it was cute. I thought it was really nice. I couldn't care less. Um, I thought it was just funny. And they were very honest um, and lovely people. So That's just um, perfect. It's Hollywood yeah. 101. It's perfect. It's perfect. You, and, and you made be. all these assumptions <laughs> and... None of them are correct. Yeah, correct. Patrick, we, we can't leave uh, real quick without asking you about Harry Potter. Um, obviously, you came into the Harry Potter franchise with big shoes to fill after three John Williams films. I'm curious, did you ever speak to John when you started on the project? Or how do you how do you follow John Williams and, and knock it out of the park? It seems like a big, big, uh, big ask. Well, it was a tremendous honor to follow in his footsteps. And of course... Um, um, his tremendous reputation it goes you know before him um and uh you, know, you, you i suppose uh, in a way when i did henry v i followed in the footsteps of uh william walton so i had already been there with with a sort of uh, you know a highly successful composer um and uh and i felt you know there was no point in me worrying about it. We never met, actually. Um, I've never met John. Um, I've been at various award ceremonies and I've seen him around, but I've never been introduced. Um, and uh, so when the opportunity came up to do it, he wasn't available. Um, um, I I thought, well, I, I mustn't 
fret about this. I must um, give it my best. And it's a director I've worked with before, Mike Newell. I did two films, Donnie Brasco and Into the West with Mike. So I knew I'd be in a very safe hands and I knew he would do a fantastic job. And he allowed me to, you know, to um, to give it my own voice. And it was a brand new deal in that um, it was a whole new producer and director and everything else. And also the story shifts quite dramatically in terms of the age of these young people. They're mature, uh, they're growing into adult adulthood. There's a sort of love element. Um, Voldemort's character becomes far more prominent and dominant, that story. And Moody's character is, is, a, is a huge role, a, a huge part to play in it. Um, so, um, and, I've, uh, and obviously I was delighted to use John's team, uh, the, um, the Hedgewick team. And, uh, uh, um, but I, I had the audacity to change the harmonies underneath it. Uh, <laughs> and I hope we didn't mind Lovely. that because, because I, I felt that it was a, it was a darker story. The, the chords had to do slightly different things um, underneath, the, um, underneath, the, underneath the theme. Um, and I remember the recording session um, as they were playing it, the orchestra were kind of like, their, their eyes were sort of slightly cross-eyed as they were playing it. And I said, carry on, it's correct, the harmonies are correct. <laughs> Don't worry about it. The harmonies are correct. Okay, you know, um, that's a D flat to an E flat in the middle of it all. Um, uh, it's sort of slightly crunchy, but it kind of it resolves to it works. Um, so anyway, it was a it was a tremendous honour. It's an, an incredible sort of um, phenomenon. The entire thing. So I'm very grateful to him. I'm very grateful to uh, the, the the filmmakers for giving me this this wonderful opportunity and Justin Fear who conducts it along with other composers all over the world um, we were there with the family the, Ar- the Albert Hall a packed house what more do you want in your career um, all of us composers having our works performed if we're lucky enough um, with the you know with the the Philharmonia in London with you've got the Albert Hall you're in a box and with your family and your friends and this this is incredible experience of live and that was always my dream um, right from the very because coming from theatre, I thought, why, why are we having, why don't we have contemporary pictures with music against the film, as opposed to these silent movies that was all the rage with Carl Davis, which are great. Um, so that has has become to, has come to fruition, and it's fantastic. Um, I think it's a wonderful thing. It's a, this art form is still developing, and I've always felt this. Um, we were the sort of um, the Cinderella of the classical music world. Not anymore. Not anymore. Mm-hmm. Actually, in many ways, the classical music world um, is is really, really suffering badly. Uh, retaining audiences, sponsorships. I'm really, I really fret for it. Um, they're having to really reinvent themselves and and sort of join the zeitgeist in this whole new world that's out there. So. Um, and to be part of that, I'm extremely, extremely fortunate. And interestingly enough, one of the ways they are reinventing is to bring live to picture film concerts back into those auditoriums if we sure. ever get back there and sure. playing film scores. I just wish I was a fly on the wall when they had that moment where they realized John Williams isn't available and they fretted about the the possibility that could, do you think we can get Patrick Doyle? I just... I. 
he's the only other person we can go to. Patrick, do you have any plans for future concerts? I know that we're in a weird state right now, but um, are you going to join that crowd? Well, there's one plan. There's one planned uh, in November with the RTE Orchestra in in Dublin, and I'm not sure. Well, fingers crossed, I'm not sure. And and there's a performance of 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 actually of the Goblet of Fire planned in Rochester um, uh, with the Rochester Symphony Orchestra uh, in September, and I'm not sure if it'll be out of lockdown then. By then, I, I have no idea. So um, you know, the LSO uh, just don't play anymore and um so I'm 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 just beginning to score um Death on the Nile with Kenneth mm-hmm. Branagh. So goodness knows what's gonna happen. Um I wrote a little piece um uh, I mentioned it earlier recently for a solo violin and orchestra. And, and you heart. said for an album. Is there a Patrick Doyle album in the works? No, what it is it's an album that my agency in Adele, Maggie Rothford, is producing and it's for charity. Mm. Uh, for this whole crisis, um, and we've all been asked to to submit a piece that perhaps was never recorded, or um, and I say, okay, I'll, I'll I'll compose something for it. So I got the call on the Friday, and I'm in on the Monday, and I had a little melody for a, a, I was I composed a song for my former teacher who died about four or five years ago. She was my mentor, um, Edith Ferguson, and. Um, and I use another melody um, to celebrate her, 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 her life, and this was the sort of alternative one. And uh, I thought, oh, this is—I I quite like this as well. So I used that and arranged it for this. Um, so it's a song without words. Um, and uh, so this uh, wonderful guy came in, um, Tom Gould came in. He walked in to Adele on on his own. Uh, you know, he was prepared to walk in. There was no transport in London, and in the other booth, you know, separated was a, the engineer, and we recorded him. And it was a sample. Uh, the orchestra was Spitfire sounds, mostly mm-hmm. strings, um, and uh, we all did a wonderful job of, you know, caressing these artificial strings. I wouldn't like to encourage it, um, but um, <laughs> certainly for, for for you know, for the sake of this, it was like it's like having interviewers on TV with Zoom. It's not ideal, but, you know, there's a vibe to it, which is of the moment. So um, it's turned out rather lovely, actually, the piece. I'm very pleased with it. Again, you get the call, a day and a half later, it's gone. You've done it. Um, ah. so, so it's one of those things, you know, it's, it, that's why it's, it's the world of the film composers, uh, um, you know, with deadlines, and I like deadlines. I like being told, I need it for Wednesday. Great, you got it. You know, ah. you know. So great. That's a great way to wrap up. I mean, it, it really is an experience to to have a conversation with you. There's so much energy and positivity and fun. I can't imagine what it's like working on an entire film process. Joyful. Patrick Doyle. <laughs> Total joy. Always my favorite. And uh, I think, Patrick, I really owe a lot of it to the first time I heard I mean, I heard a number of scores, but it was working on Great Expectations where I saw you work and I thought, any opportunity I have to work with Patrick Doyle, I'm going to take. Of course, you and I share, I've got a cookie for you forever. (laughs) Patrick Doyle, we love you so much and look forward to hearing everything that comes up. In fact, I really hope that concert takes place in November because that's something I would like to be 
in attendance for to see a, a Patrick Doyle concert. So well, I'll give you a, well, I'll give you a shout if it happens because um, please let us know. Yeah, because the family are going to be involved as well. So, uh, but anyway, if not, if not, um, I'm sure they'll come back the following year. But um, yep. the important thing is we all stay healthy and well. That's Absolutely. exactly right. What a perfect um, note to end on. Reminder to our listeners to follow us. There's a number of ways. Twitter, at Score the Podcast. Instagram, at Score Movie. Facebook, at Score Movie. Or just search Score, a film music documentary. And send us your questions to score the mailbox at epicleft.com. We'll try to answer those on the show. Stick around after the show. We're going to play a clip from Spitfire Audio so you can hear how to elevate your music. Robert, take it away. Patrick Doyle, my favorite. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you very much. Great, great, fun show today. Score listeners, we're so grateful to be able to bring you shows like that with the support of Spitfire Audio. Mm -hmm. They collaborate with people like Hans Zimmer and the Bernard Herrmann Estate to build sample libraries that elevate your music. You're about to hear a musical demo of what that would sound like. That's right. And a, a reminder again, as an exclusive to you, our score listeners, Spitfire Audio is offering 20% off your first order that's good on over 50 of their libraries. And again, it's exclusive to you, so feel real special. Yep, just go to SpitfireAudio.com and enter the promo code SCORE2020, that's SCORE2020, so they know we sent you. Now we're going to play you a little demo cue using the Spitfire Solo Strings Package. Check it out. Oh, that was cool. Hey, let's remind them, Kenny, we're off for a few weeks, but we're coming back with an incredible lineup of talent, really exciting guests coming up. Some of the biggest in the world we've been trying to get, we finally snagged them. So have a great little summer break. We will. And uh, we'll see you in a few when we come back with episode 
11. 11, that's right. And uh, if you want to stick with us, follow us on social media, at Score the Podcast on Twitter, at Score Movie on Instagram. We'll be announcing our big guests to come, so don't miss out on that. And we will see you soon. Thanks for listening to Score the Podcast. See you in a few.